AA Beyond Belief is a podcast by, for, and about people who have found a secular path to sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, according to the site adoptionnetwork.com, 135,000 children in the United States are adopted each year, and another 428,000 children are in foster care. Among these children, males outnumber females, African-American children are disproportionately represented, and over half are six years old or older. There are 1.5 million adopted children in the United States. And according to a study at the Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond in 2012, about 4.5% of adopted individuals have or have had problems with substance abuse, compared to 2.9% for the general population. The study also said that adopted children have twice the risk of drug abuse if either their biological, full, or half-sibling had a drug abuse problem, or if their adopted siblings had drug abuse problems. So why do individuals have a, why do adopted individuals have a disproportionate disposition for substance abuse? So we have two guests today who will help us answer that question. Lisa Kay is a Korean adoptee and a person in recovery. Her expertise on the topic comes from her personal experience. Lisa has freely and openly shared her story and it's really nice to have her here. And David B. Ball, the author of Parallel Universes: The Story of Rebirth. David is a certified master addiction counselor and a member of the National Association of Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Counselors, the American Adoption Congress, and Concerned United Birth Parents. As a person who's been adopted, or as he would say relinquished, he understands adoption trauma firsthand. And as a professional addiction counselor and person in recovery with an interest in adoption issues, he's the perfect guest to help us explore and learn about this topic. Hello, Lisa and David. Welcome to AA Beyond Belief. Hello, John. Hi, Angela. Glad to be here. Nice to have you. Thank you, John. Good to have you, Lisa. And Angela, I think you're going to find this an interesting topic because it does have a lot to do with um, trauma. And I know that's (laughs) interesting. I know. I was going to say that I was a trauma junkie. And then I'm like, oh, no, junkie is not the right word. I'm like, trauma enthusiast? No, that uh, anyway, I need more words. But yes, I'm, I'm excited about this show. And I'm glad I'm glad that you had an opportunity to read, read David's uh, book, uh, Parallel Universes. Um, that was just it's a beautiful book. Um, it, 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 you learn a lot about um, the issues surrounding adopt adopted people, and you learn a lot about David, and you just learn a lot about recovery in general. It's it's a book I highly recommend. Very well written. So, where to start? Um, I thought what we might want to do, since we have two guests here, why don't we start with Lisa? If Lisa, you could share your story about, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, whatever. Um, and then uh, we'll just take it from there. And uh, why don't you have the floor, Lisa? It's yours. Okay, thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Lisa. And uh, I was adopted in the 60s. I'm a Korean adoptee. Uh, and in those days, it wasn't so common and I was adopted into a white family. So a lot of my story is around identity and race issues because as a small child, you know, when I first came to AA, I heard people say about being uncomfortable in their skin and I truly was uncomfortable in my skin my whole life, you know, because 
even though I was raised in this culture, when I go out um, in the world, I'm still an Asian person. That's who uh, people see. So um, I grew up with a lot of feelings of uh, self-hatred. I didn't want to be Asian. I wanted to be white like my siblings. Um, also, uh, we talk about uh, racial isolation. So I also uh, did not socialize with other Asian people because I didn't have, you know, anything in common. Um, so what I heard in the rooms when I was new is about that uh, just wanting to belong. And, and for me, you know, I just kind of stuck out. I was always awkward and very, very shy. And, um, and also I wanted to touch on, uh, for me, I had, I still to this day, I'm 56 and now, uh, no idea of really when I was born or where I was born. Our, uh, many of our birth certificates back in the 60s and maybe even through the 70s and 80s are, uh, fabricated. So, we don't even have access to our to uh, where we came from. And I think that most people, that's just a fundamental thing that you know about yourself. You kind of know where you were born. And uh, so that, I think, was something that, that plagued me for many years. Fortunately, I've been able to get in uh, touch with other adopt Korean adoptees. And it's, it's uh, finally... A, um, a feeling of like uh, hearing your story and, and saying, I felt that way too, because it's something that we can't even describe to our, to our white families, what that's like to, uh, to not uh, be heard. Uh, that's so important. Uh, then I guess also, we, I think someone touched on the trauma of losing our birth family, our birth mothers and our culture. Even if it's not in our memory, it's, it's something that we still carry with us, you know, um, on a, uh, I guess a cellular level. When I first went back to Korea when I was 45 years old, I say that I felt like my body was home. I couldn't even describe it. It was just, it was just a wonderful feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting sober about uh, coming up on 10 years, uh, it was the first time that I was able to look at all of the ways that I behaved and my abandonment issues and the reason I, you know, I wasn't able to form, uh, real meaningful relationships. Uh, also, I should add that my adoptive mother and I grew up in a lot of chaos and, and poverty. So those were other stressors, uh, that added to the whole racial piece. And I didn't have words to express my frustrations. I say, even though I didn't start drinking heavily until I was in my 30s, uh, in my 20s, I certainly did uh, binge drink. So I drank alcoholically to escape into, uh, because I didn't know how to cope with those feelings of uh, the fear and the bullying. And to this day, you know, I say, I still have to tell myself the self-talk that I, I need to have boundaries. I need to not let people push me around and to not be bullied because uh, you fall into those patterns and they're hard to break. Even though intellectually you know what's happening, um, just being able to be assertive and stand up for myself. And when somebody says something to me, I say, no, that's not me. You don't know me. You know, my mother did that a lot to me 
And then I've had relationships even in the last few years where I would find myself uh, choosing these people who were just real domineering, you know, and I, that's just not, uh, that's not me. And I feel, even though with this, uh, I, this, um, quarantine, I feel very happy just to be with myself. <laughs> I, I, I like, you know, I, I go to Zoom meetings, I'm involved in some volunteer projects, and I fill my days. And I like the fact that it's like just um, some quiet reflection. You know, I'm taking a Spanish class, and I just find things to do. I feel, I say I feel happy as a clam, and I'm happy I'm happy I don't have any other people to contend with, you know, as far as, you know, children to chase after or a partner, you know, it's just me. And I like that. It's what I need right now. So Lisa, Um, how long ago was it that you took that trip to Korea? um, The first time was in 2008. And then I went again the following year on another adoptee trip. And then my last trip was in 2016. And yeah, it's really neat. There's something, it's kind of like, you know, when you first come to the rooms and you, you hear your story and you hear people who felt the way that you did. And so when I went and I discovered the adoptee uh, loops, it was like another layer of like, wow, somebody really uh, can understand what that's like. <laughs> so you were really drawn to reach out to them. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that's one of my volunteer projects now. We have we're starting up sort of an advocacy group. Uh there there is a lot of a very high incident of suicide uh among the Korean adoptees. There's actually over two hundred thousand of us worldwide from the you know, post Korean War till the present, even though the adoptions have tapered off. I mean, we could be our own uh uh, major city there's so many of us but it's neat how with social media we've, we've been able to connect over the last 10 years and and our voices are being heard for once you know like with all this stuff in the news about race it's like i've been saying this my whole life you, we don't live in a colorblind society yeah. <laughs> anyways yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, Lisa. And David, I'm, I'm sure that you find a lot in Lisa's story that sounds familiar. Um, why don't I give you the floor? And oh, I, Thanks, John. Yeah, I absolutely do. You know, one thing, Lisa, that you said that struck me uh, immediately right between the eyes is that um, you talked about those thinking patterns and thus the behavior patterns that are hard to break. <laughs> Even though we intellectually know what's healthy and what's not healthy, right? We, we know what works and what doesn't work yet. It's tough to do that. And that because because of any number of reasons. For me, it's because I'm age 59 and I've been doing things for a really long time in my life. But it's also because I'm an adoptee. And uh-huh. we have these, as a result, we have these coping or survival mechanisms that are so deeply ingrained in everything that we do and every way we look at the world. It's really difficult to extract this from that, to feel safe and to expand beyond that. And I think you articulated that extremely well. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. And my story is is really similar. And I, I think you know, my as as my story has evolved over time, I think I, I would say that as well. I mean, my intellectual understanding has grown immensely of what my story is. You know, for the first forty some years of my life, um, well, I better stop and just introduce myself again. I'm David B. Bowl, <laughs> John said. Uh, I'm both a relinquishee. That is, I was relinquished by my birth mother, and I'm an adoptee. I was adopted into another family. And I'm a person in long-term recovery from both alcoholism and nicotine use disorder. 
In addition to that, I am also in a profession of being an independent addiction consultant, a clinical substance abuse counselor, and a recovery management coach. And I work with a lot of people with substance use disorders and their families who are trying to make changes. And not coincidentally, a lot of relinquishees, adoptees, those who have orphaned, those who have been fostered, have been attracted into my practice. And I've worked with a lot of people who struggle with some of the same things we're talking about. But again, for the first 40 some years of my life, my story was really simple. I, you know, I, I was adopted as an infant. I was the first child in the family. My family later had a natural born daughter and a, another adopted son from a different family other than mine. Um, I had very little information about my adoptive parents because I was adopted in the baby scoop era where that's just the way it was. Adoptions were closed. People were told, forget about your past. Your new life starts now and move forward. And that's the way I was treated. But I was welcomed and I was loved and I was a talk of their family and friends as I was adopted in their family. And I don't recall a time when I when I didn't know that I was adopted. Um, I even proudly told some friends about it. And uh, that's just the way it was. It was part of my life. But even at a, a really young age, I remember feeling different from others. Um, and as, at the time, I, I, it was more described that I was being timid and shy. But I think more accurately, I just never felt I fit in anywhere. And I had no idea what to do in life. So I never I felt that other people knew exactly what to do. And that was something that was talked about a lot when I came into recovery. And that, of course, is a characteristic very similar to adoptees as well. So, that, that, I mean, there's a hook, right? But I never attributed that to any one thing, including adoption. And, and that was that. And I started drinking at age 13. And I experimented with other drugs as people my age and that generation were wont to do. I didn't think I was doing anything um, out of the ordinary. Um, and in some ways in life, I, I did okay, right? I, I, I had friends, I had social circles, I was well-respected, I built a career, I got married at age 24 and had two biological children. Um, but shortly after they were born, my wife said, you know, uh, that's fine that you don't want to know anything about your adoption, but perhaps um, it would be fair to the children if we got some medical history so they might know what they were up against. And I couldn't argue with that, sadly, even though I had tried not to think about my adoption for most of my life at, by, by that point in time. And Wisconsin's a closed state, so I petitioned for some closed records and um, didn't have a lot of success. Um, I got some family medical history and learned that my grandma died of heart disease. My grandfather had Alzheimer's, but um, nothing that I could show that I was genetically predisposed to anything. And at that time, I had a grand mal seizure and doctors were pushing me to try to get this information. And so, nope, nope, nothing there. Um, nothing to see here. I, I, I reached a dead end and there was nothing like to pursue. But that doesn't end the story. I, I opened up a whole can of worms at that point in time. So after my uh, nine months after my initial contact with the state of Wisconsin, um, they said that they had tried to make contact with my birth mother, but they had learned that she had passed away as a result of alcoholism. And that was really interesting to me. And um, the timing was remarkable uh, in that um, I was having um, a tough time in my life. My alcohol use was increasing dramatically and negative consequences were accumulating. Um, Jack Daniels was now a part of my everyday life. And um, it was affecting my relationships and my ability to function in, in any, any clinical way you could imagine. Um, but it, and it took nine months for me getting that information and thinking about that and thinking about my birth mother, whom I, oh, I had no information about other than the fact that she had passed away. And it led me to get sober. And thankfully, I got sober. I did it with a lot of help. I went into a hospital detoxification program. I went to a residential treatment program. Um, I was introduced to the 12 steps and I um, 
immersed myself in a 12-step recovery and fellowship that stabilized my life in a major way. And thankfully for that, because it allowed me to do the work that I really needed to do. And that's what we're talking about in part tonight. And that's the relinquishing and the adoption part. Um, And I had to do it, right? I had to do it. So, So just imagine here, I'm in AA. I do my fourth step after a period of time. That was great. 18 months later, I decided... Well, you didn't really address this adoption thing, David. Um, let's do a fourth step on adoption. And I did. My sponsor was really good, but he was not an expert. He was not an expert, right? So I got it off my chest. And what I realized, instead of feeling great and feeling attached and welcomed and all that, I realized what what an immense amount of work I needed to do around that, including attachment issues I might have had, trust issues I might have had, identity issues that were lacking because I didn't have a lot of information. Um, so, So that's what I did. That's so interesting that your your family um, they they loved you and they were glad that you were in the house and you had a you had a nice stable home, but it was more the um, that didn't really compensate for the feel the deep feeling of being relinquished by your birth mother. Exactly, exactly, and and who would know it right unless unless I learned that somehow, you know, it's something that happened pre-verbally, right? Pre-verbally, as I was just a newborn, I had no way of remembering that incident, so I, I couldn't attach any meaning to it. And I certainly uh, couldn't describe it, even if I could. And e- even the feelings of not fitting in or malaise that I was experiencing throughout my life, um, I, I never pointed the finger at adoption. I just thought that was me, right? I thought I was defective. Something's wrong with me. Um, I was I was given up for adoption. So, so something had to be wrong with me. So that, that was that was my assumption as I was going through these, these developmental periods in my life. And um, as I said, I suffered from relational issues like attachment and, and no idea who to trust, and including myself. And it was all about shame, right? It was all about shame and you know, abandonment, betrayal, and shame. Those, those, that trifecta of emotions that are so common to people in recovery and those who have been relinquished. Um, right. One of the things that, that I thought of when I was reading your story um, was that I, I heard some stories from people where they talk about um, you know, they're, they're sharing their alcoholic story and that their families were normal. Their families were fine. Their parents, you know, didn't abuse them. They were great. Mm-hmm. They were supportive and yet they became alcoholic anyway. Exactly. And, um, and so, yeah. And so reading your book in the beginning, um, you know, the, the intro talks about um, trauma um, as, you know, being, you know, that like, <laughs> if I can get the words out, um, like as soon as there's an environment, you know, we're a part of it. And so any sort of mother who would, you know, either not be planning to be a mother or the stress around that, um, the hormones do affect, you know, the placenta. And mm-hmm. so therefore, yeah, you could have a perfectly normal family life and yet still have these feelings of of, um, of unworthiness or um, just stress, extra stress. Um, Absolutely. And uh, and so that was really helpful to me to to see it in here in that way. And and I'll, I'll share with our listeners that right before we started, <laughs> I admitted that I hadn't, or I, I read his book, I finished mm-hmm. it today, but that it wasn't at the top of my list when I met him two years ago at the Toronto conference um, because I'm not an adoptee. And so while, you know, I do like memoirs, you know, as other people have shared, um, it just, you know, wasn't at the top of the list. So I'm glad that we did this show because, you know, as I read the book, there was so much that I could relate to and understand better about um, both trauma and adoption and um, and the shame that can, you know, that 
a lot of us have that we, you know, and it's not even that we're blaming our parents. It's, it mm-hmm. just seems to be part of our, our physicality, you know, um, the body keeps the score, as they say. And so um, I really liked how that was talked about in your book. Um, and, uh, and it made me feel, you know, much more open to reading the rest of your book. And, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. So I thought I'd put that out there in case there are people that don't relate to uh, adoptees um, that, uh, that, yeah, it was helpful to me and, and really opened me up to looking at um, some things in a different way. Well, I appreciate that. And that certainly I, in a couple, I think it was a couple podcasts ago, you talked at great length about adverse childhood experiences. And mm-hmm. this is the link that we can share, whether you're an adoptee or not. This is some language that those of us in recovery oftentimes have in common. Right. So, right. you know, as I'm telling my story and I, I, I suggested earlier that I happened upon alcohol at age 13. Well, I, I believe it was more than that. I, I believe I happened upon alcohol at a time in my life where I was totally lost, where I didn't fit in. Right. I, I, I had mm-hmm. all these things going on. And who knows? Right. The reason I identify as being uh, relinquishing an adoptee is twofold because it describes two different events. Being relinquished can be a real separation from mother and could cause real clinical trauma not attaching to the family one is adopted by, even though it's safe and they're loving and everything else, not feeling like you belong is a different type of trauma. It's a complex or a developmental trauma. And I believe that I was suffering an immense developmental interruption, right? I wasn't developing normally because I was in constant fear because I didn't feel like I was connected anywhere. And when I found alcohol at 13, wow, that was the, that was what, they, what we term sometimes is the mad, magic elixir, right? I, right. Some, some people say when I first started drinking or using drugs, it made them more socially aware and it was or, or able to get along. And, and that was part way with me. But I thought I attached to these people in meaningful ways that no other human beings had ever attached. And that, that's how I know, in retrospect, that I was likely drinking alcoholically at age 13. It, it, alcohol altered my perception of reality. And it was no accident. This was a learned behavior that was working for an, uh, an illness that I couldn't even describe until 30 years later. David, I don't know if you can... I'm- I don't know if you can see the comments in uh, in the chat room, but Johnny wrote that your book was unbelievably helpful to him as a child of alcoholic parents, and he can't believe how useful your story was, and he thanks you for it. Well, Johnny, that's very kind, and, and I appreciate that commentary. I will tell you that uh, of the people who do reach out after reading my book, a good portion of them are uh, parents uh, and families of people who struggle with alcoholism or um, adopted parents uh, because they've they've attested to the fact that it's provided with to them a better understanding of what the context was of some negative events going on. Lisa, I was wondering about yeah. with your experience um, with your your group, you know, and what I heard mm-hmm. in your sharing with that is that you you finally felt seen, which is, you know, how a lot of us feel when we get to the rooms and people are sharing similar stories. Um, do you do, in your group? Um, do you guys talk about addiction or uh, things you mentioned, you know, the suicide rate? Is it something mm-hmm. that that you have uh, groups that you talk about it with? Um, or do you keep that separate, your your addiction recovery and um, your adoption um, community? Well, that's funny you asked that. Um, I participated in a, a kind of an organization meeting the other day, and I kind of outed myself. And I don't typically do that, but I just said that these are issues that, that uh, parallel recovery, you know, about having a voice and uh, the self-hatred and just wanting to belong, and that also we are all at different points in our uh, sobriety, as well as our adoption journey. Uh, Some of us 
you know, don't have any interest at all in finding our birth families. Others um, try very hard. But uh, I think as I get older, I think more about about my birth mother and the, the stress that she must have gone through uh, knowing that she had to relinquish me and that I don't know if she's still alive or not, but I feel, uh, I don't know. I, I never had any animosity toward her, but as David touched on, we, we probably both had that feeling of being relinquished and unwanted, but fortunately as a result of being involved in the adoption groups, I don't have that feeling anymore. I feel like I'm sure that I was very much wanted, but it was the circumstances, the social uh, constructs that uh, in Asian culture and the poverty, and there were so many factors, and also that she didn't have any agency, and, and nor did nor did the orphan uh, babies. You know, it wasn't our choice to come here. Um, and the narrative that we're told is that we're supposed to be grateful. And yes, we're grateful, but uh, what they don't see is the loss and the, uh, the sadness. One thing I was interested in, uh, there was a conversation on Facebook about the biolog- if, if this is like biological, that adoptees have such a high incidence of addiction. You know, maybe it's because they're birth parents had addiction issues and which is why they had to relinquish their children. Do you think there's anything to that, Dave? You know, uh, there can be, right? I mean, if we look at all the elements that we know that might contribute to addiction at this point in time, that being genetics and that being environment, right? Mm-hmm. Environment can be the, the the environment which you grew up in, the psychological uh, aspects of it, the toxic stress, any number of things that one might have been experience or experiencing. Yeah, I think there is something possible with that. I mean, I may imagine my birth mother who... Um, who um, the man that um, helped her create me denied that he was the father and her being sent off to a home for unwed mothers all by herself for the last five months of her pregnancy. Um, imagine how the stress she was under, right? So, so you talk about a, an unborn uh, fetus in, in, inside of a woman and the stresses that they might be feeling, it may begin then. And absolutely that biology continues. I think there's a lot of research uh, being done and new theories uh, being supported that suggests that this trauma can be generational and it is cellular and that it is biologically embedded in some capacity in the cells and passed along from generation to generation. Absolutely true. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, Joe M has written in here. He says, be careful what you wish for. The family of origin may have its own hell when you find them. He says that his aunt ratted his mom out in a drunken party. The cops were called too, and the cops called child services. So yeah. Uh, what was your experience, Dave, when you when you found your biological mother? Well, it was interesting. As as I mentioned earlier, I learned that my mother had died of alcoholism, and I had no idea what that meant, right? right? It, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't say alcoholism on a death certificate. Something else <laughs> must have happened. Right. So what, what I was able to do, thankfully, is I was able to meet some step-siblings who helped fill in some of that information. And sadly, my mother died um, in a shelter on the south side of Chicago um, of respiratory distress as a result of alcoholism, and she had struggled with it for decades and who knows she may have even been struggling with it when i was born i'm not really sure she did not uh probably did not come home from an come from an alcoholic family but um had some stress in college whereby she even went and saw some counseling professionals because she felt like she was under so much stress then you add an unwanted pregnancy to it or an unkeepable pregnancy to it and she was under massive toxic stress at that time i learned also that my biological father who was not 
identified paternity was not legally established, but I found out who he was, um, also likely struggled with alcoholism. And what I can tell you is that I have um, some step-siblings who have been known to have that problem as well. So it's an issue that oftentimes runs in families in many different ways, and I'm no exception to that rule. Another comment from a Facebook uh, member of our Facebook group. He says that he was adopted back in the 60s in the United Kingdom. And even though he had a very loving adopted family, the feeling of rejection was always there. Even though I was still loved by his parents, when I got to the age of 20, he began searching for his birth family. And from the age of 17, he began drinking and drugging, which was in retrospect, a way of trying to avoid those feelings of rejection. And also he's come to realize a way to deal with imposter syndrome, never felt comfortable. You know, that feeling, and I don't, I can't speak for all adoptees, but I do um, hang out in those communities. And very much like Lisa, I have found support in adoptee communities and not only getting from them, but giving back to them. And this is, this is a common theme, right? That, that discomfort, that, that uncomfortable in our own skin, no matter what intellectually might be going on in our lives. I think that that's a common thread and one that we typically need to work through in our lives. And I, you know, John, you, you talked about the statistics earlier about adoptees, but there's so much more. Not not only are, are those statistics true about addiction, um, but adoptees are also more likely to have difficulties with eating disorders and attention deficit disorder and suicide and untimely pregnancies. And we have higher rates of higher uh, personality disorders and antisocial personality and borderline personality. But mainly, and I, I'm not looking for sympathy here, it's just something we need to address. And certainly if someone's trying to work a program of recovery, they need to be aware of this sooner rather than later. We have issues of loss and grief and identity development, self-esteem and lack of information about family history that may never be resolvable, which which contributes to that feeling of discomfort, right? Where, when am I ever going to be whole? When am I ever going to feel like I've done enough? And that hypervigilance is a common thread throughout adoptees, especially those attempting to recover. Yeah, I really liked how you talked about that in the book that, I mean, you, you did, if there is a way to do program, do AA perfectly, you know, you were, you were going for it, you know, a gajillion <laughs> meetings and all the inventory and all the books and uh, all of the stuff. And yet this was still something that, that needed to be addressed. And I thought that was important because I know just in, in my experience that um, in early recovery, that when I was going through the steps and doing all the stuff, if I continued to feel not that great or, you know, um, upset about something, I thought I was doing it wrong. And uh, there must be something, you know, extra wrong with me or I missed a step or whatever. And so I, I liked that, you know, by sharing your story, you showed that, you know, you can get sober and be, you know, sober and yet the journey continues. And um, and I think that's an important message to hear because, you know, regardless of, of whether you were adopted or not, um, I think all of, most of us, <laughs> maybe there's some that are, are really more, more well than others, um, but um, <laughs> being open to um, seeking additional help, um, even after you've been sober for a while is, is, uh, is important um, for the continued journey. Absolutely. Very well said. You know, um, we're taught um, in clinical settings and we're taught in medical settings and we're taught in recovery settings that addiction and recovery are forever. It's something that once someone has crossed that line into a, a severe uh, substance use disorder, they're likely going to have to deal with all their lives. Well, relinquishment is very much the same way. That never goes away. So there are life events that can be triggering or add pressure and toxic stress to people's lives. 
And you're correct. We should be at the ready to be able to deal with those things and arm ourselves in, in the best way possible with the tools necessary to do that work. And, you know, Lisa, something that was interesting in your story is the whole I, the whole problem about identification and feeling that you don't belong is that you also had that racial component where, you know, you were Korean adoptee by a white family. You lived in a white community. And I think that you related that, you know, it, it was a while before you re- realized that, 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 that you felt you had that feeling of not belonging. Am I, am I correct with that? Yes, uh, I was even sharing in one of my Zoom meetings, you know, I don't see many people that look like me in AA. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't ain't a lot of Asians getting sober. If they are, they they don't do it with AA. (laughs) So, yeah, we have another comment from Facebook. He says, thank you for this extremely, thank you. This is extremely useful for me. Again, connection for me has been the main help for my sobriety. So to hear people as yourselves sharing on the subject adds to that connection and to know I'm not alone. Thank you. And thank you for making the comment because I, I hope that these, these um, podcast episodes are useful and helpful to people. Um, I, I love these. It's kind of like a, it's like an AA meeting and a party and a conversation. And it's just a, it's just a really a good thing to do on a Friday night, I think. So, but if you could, if it helps you, that's even better. So thank you so much for that comment. Now, if you'd like to call in, our phones are open and the number is 844-899-8278. There you go. So Angela, what was it about Dave's book that you found most compelling, um, that, that was interesting, interesting to you? Um, well, like I said, I, I really, um, I really liked the science and the intro because it was uh, described his experience and the adoptee experience in terms that um, that I'm now familiar with. Again, when I first met him, I I hadn't uh, read that much. You know, I wasn't doing my own trauma therapy and stuff. And um, and so, you know, a couple of years later, reading that, I, I could understand better, and I felt um, more connection to you know, what the story was about to be. Um, I could relate to that experience better. Um, and um, I, I liked where, you know, he talked about um, the value of the drunkalogue that oftentimes where, you know, in meetings were like, it has to be solution, you know, and uh, straight out of the book solution and blah, blah, blah. But I think it's our stories. I mean, the stories were what, what got me to stay um, was hearing about people who felt as terrible as I did or had similar experiences and then were able to overcome them. I mean, that's main, the main reason I stuck around. It definitely wasn't the God stuff. Yeah, you know, I forgot <laughs> and, about that, but you are so right. You know, I you often hear that people decry the drunk log and everything, but I love the stories. I love speaker meetings and, and I love memoirs. You just learn so much from the, from the stories. Yeah, yeah and the speaker meetings also, you know, uh, the, the stories, uh, the drunk you could hear what somebody was like, you know, in the beginning, you know, what they did and what they're like now, ideally. Um, but, you know, in a lot of the meetings, you just hear how somebody is dealing with things for five minute increments. And um, and I couldn't always relate to that because, you know, they'd share that they let go and let God and, and you know, they have their shit together. And, and I, I'm not at that point, you know, <laughs> and so so here hearing like how, how they went through and it worked out. So I, I, I liked when he talked about the drunk log um, and uh, um, the addiction memoirs um, when you, you shared about that um, because of, you know, how uh, in addiction memoirs, um, 
the idea of uh, people trying, you know, when they get to the point where they'll try anything at all. And I think that's something that I can relate to as well is, you know, because again, I was um, atheist and still am. Um, and, uh, um, and so doing the going to AA meetings and having to hear that stuff. And from day one, I said, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't know if I can do this. Um, and uh, yet it was the only, only thing in town. And so I, I had to, and so it was, you know, getting to that thing. The the other thing I liked is uh, he dubbed the word coins, um, which, you know, makes me giggle, um, you know, very creative <laughs> um, for a community of individuals needing support. So it relates to, you know, 12 step meetings of all different kinds. And a lot of us get coins there. And so, you know, yeah, I, I, I love wordplay as well. So anyway, that that tickled me. Um, and uh, if you want to talk a little bit about some of the unhelpful sayings, um, we talked about some in a few podcasts ago, but some of them you listed that I agree uh, with is like uh, the safety ones um, and the bossy ones <laughs> and the added <laughs> of feelings aren't facts, you know, because um, in, uh, in my family, you know, certain people were allowed to feel and certain people were not, um, and certain feelings were allowed, and certain ones were not, and you know, and it depended on who you were, which things you got to feel, and such, and um, and so being able to feel, and then recognizing my feelings is is a big deal for me, and so you know how it's talked about in the room sometimes is not helpful. So that was another thing that I I enjoyed that you addressed in that book, David. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the organizations you belong to, the, um, oh, the Concerned United Birth Parents and the American Adoption Congress and any other adoption um, organization that you are participating in. There are all kinds of great resources out there. Certainly the American Adoption Congress, uh, uh, typically in a non-COVID era, holds uh, an annual convention that brings together um, any number of resources to bear uh, upon people um, who are adopted in particular, but also resources for other people in the constellation, that adoption constellation that includes birth parents, relinquishing family members, adoptive parents, etc. Um, and they um, um, have a clearinghouse of a great deal of research that's available. Concerned United Birth Parents is more bringing the different parties together uh, and gaining understanding of how each person's perspective informs um, their lives and, and their interactions going forward. There's a group uh, in Indiana called the Indiana Adoptee Network that I am, am very active in, even though I'm not in Indiana. Uh, their, their work crosses uh, state borderlines, and they're in their, uh, they missed their conference in April, but they're doing a weekly uh, happy hour, if you will, on Friday evenings, bringing together adoptee resources, and I, I helped them to do that. And tonight they had uh, Nancy Verrier, who is an author and therapist on. Uh, Nancy wrote two very important adoptee books. One was... Um, the primal wound, describing that wound that happens when the child is relinquished from its birth mother, and the other was coming home to self, which is a book about identity development in the adult adoptee and how how does one develop an identity and continue their personal development when they don't have biological mirroring and other family members from which to reflect things back to them. So I'm very involved in those organizations. And of course, I, I also operate um, uh, in the addiction realm and um, spend a lot of time doing that as well. But I also am a recovery manager and I help people in their recoveries, including families. And I'm, um, I use those services myself. So um, I'm very familiar with all different types of recovery. And it's very important um, for me to stay abreast of that, not only for my own well-being, but for, 
for those of my clients. And um, I think it was so important that that the Facebook commenter talked about connection and Angela made the comment about a drunkalog. Ultimately, to me, those are just really um, fundamental forms of narrative therapy, right? The better able we are to tell a story about ourselves, the more mentally, quote unquote, well adjusted we are, the better we're, we're able to deal with things in our lives and to become more resilient. So telling our story, so long as it's, you know, so long as my story today is not the identical story that I told 15 years ago when I got sober, as long as that story has evolved, because I've done some more work on what's going on in this world and on myself, then it's really healthy to do that, right? And as, as, as we know, in, in the AA belief universe, the <laughs> universe, sometimes these these um, communities of individuals needing support uh, can be really tough to navigate. I mean, that, that those that mutual aid group that uses these 12 steps, sometimes it's really difficult between their texts and their culture. It's not only difficult for people who just struggle with the religious language, but they can be particularly difficult for adoptees who are always trying to seek safety. They need a safe place to do the work that's so essential. So as part of those 12-step programs, sometimes adoptees struggle over the text and sometimes they struggle over the culture, right? This, this notion of powerlessness, and, and it's not just adoptees, it's people who have trauma, right? If you if it, trauma can render people powerlessness and to tell them they're powerless and they have to turn to something outside of themselves is oftentimes really difficult when trauma survivors are being taught, you, you can marshal the personal power within yourself to deflect these things. It's a contrary message, including that unmanageability that, you know, that says that um, you, you you didn't manage your life, even though as an adoptee, I, we've existentially survived a lot of things by doing that over, over the years. And I think the other thing that adoptees trip over in terms of the text is that um, focus on the wrongs, right? Whether it's defects of character you know, that, that imply that we're defective in a way. And of course, you heard me and you heard Lisa's testimony that we didn't feel quite right or we didn't feel comfortable. Or we didn't feel like we belong. It's oftentimes dangerous for trauma people to reflect on the past without some new healthy coping mechanisms, right? So telling a drunk log in AA without knowing where to go with that flood of emotions can oftentimes be contraindicated. But, but it's, it's that shame that comes from that, the negative focus, the focusing on the wrongs. And it's particularly, and John, you've heard me talk about this because I can't talk about this enough, that darn spiritual axiom that says if there's something um, that I'm bothered about, there's something wrong with me, right? And oh, man, tell someone who thinks there's something wrong with them that there's something wrong with them. <laughs> the most negative narrative you could ever confirm about somebody, right? Instead of that, that positive, safe, validating environment that we all need to do the recovery work, whatever we're recovering from is necessary. And that's just the text alone. Then there's the culture. And a lot of us who have spent some time in those rooms, and I and don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing anything that works for anybody. I'm just talking about my personal experience and some others. Um, but tough love doesn't work for trauma people, including adoptees, right? It can, can feel really hostile. And if it feels hostile, it's not safe. And if it's not safe, we're not going to tell our stories or do the work, right? So, so that makes it really different. And um, sometimes being told, you know, or not be told or feeling you're not welcome here if you don't do it our way, boy, that 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 makes it feel even more unsafe, right? And um, I think it's really important for people to know whether they have trauma, whether they're adopted, or whether they have some outside issues. There's always a time that they need to find other people in areas of expertise to benefit them because every solution is not necessarily found in a group that focuses on recovery from substance use disorders. There are other people that can bear witness and help with those facts. So I'll get off my soapbox for now, but those are some, those are some concerns that exist sometimes in the 12 step fellowships that are very similar to the, the problems that people in, in the AA beyond belief 
um, secular universe have as well. Mm-hmm. And Lisa, I was kind of interested in what organization you belong to for adoptees. Um, there are several, actually. We even have a group for uh, 50 and older. <laughs> um, some who are uh, kind of on the birth search journey. Um, some are just, you know, fun. Others are for uh, advocacy as far as uh, access to our records. Um, that's um, another one is uh, citizenship, having dual citizenship. Um, I wanted to comment, though, on uh, something that David was saying. Um, I think that the way that my perspective has changed over the last five years or so is that uh, I think when we first come in, uh, we are, quote unquote, broken. But today I I feel very proud of myself. Uh, It hasn't been an easy road. (laughs) You know, they tell you that uh, fear of economic insecurities will leave us. It hasn't left, but 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 my fear, you know, my fear of it and the way that I approach it is, is um, I'm a survivor and I say that I am not broken. I am resilient. I mean, the stuff that I've been through, especially the last, you know, four or five years, I, I've, I feel like I've come out the other side, even though, you know, I, I'm not working and I don't, you know, I just got my unemployment and I was kind of worried about the rent. But I don't know. I just feel so empowered and so healthy, you know, with uh, with my network of my support network of friends and uh, people in the program, in and out of the program. It's interesting that you mentioned the group that um, helps people find their biological parents. I, I'm, I'm betting that is getting to be more common nowadays um, with uh, people, you know, going online and. Yeah, especially, yep, with the DNA testing, uh, for sure. Um, and also for, it's uh, easier, I think, I probably shouldn't speak for the whole adoption community, but um, younger adoptees, the records, they kept better records. <laughs> for us older ones, we don't have much hope, but uh, adoptees from the, you know, 70s or so 80s on i think the records were better and they they have more uh chance of finding biological family members yeah one of the things that um i was curious about and and i think david would probably have more experience in this is um is i know several people in recovery um who are adoptees, but they it's within their family. Um, so mm-hmm. it was usually like a sister or somebody who, you know, um, got pregnant at a young age. And so then the mother adopted the child and raised. And so, you know, yeah, that kind of a situation. Actually, most of it is, is that sort of a situation that, or an aunt or somebody else. And so then um, a child is raised thinking that their family is a certain way and at some point finds out that, no, it's actually, you know, this person is your mother who you think <laughs> is, you know, your sister and stuff. So I'm, I'm wondering about, you know, your experience with that. Um, well, sure, sure. Well, that's interesting. And of course, I, I don't want to overly generalize anyone's story because just like addiction stories are very complex adoption stories are immensely complex as well but yes kinship adoption that you're describing happens very Mm -hmm. frequently and sometimes it it is preferable 
to outside placement or any number of alternatives that exist there. And oftentimes social workers or adoption placement people will look to family members to see if that's possible because ultimately what that does is not only does it provide structure, but it but it helps to eliminate that secondary matter that has to be dealt with, right? So so the, the relinquishment never truly occurs to the degree that it would occur if someone were placed outside of their family. And not all of that genetic mirroring is lost if someone is raised in their own family. However, whether someone is told um, or given misinformation about who they are and what their place is in the family and who's raising them or right. whether or not they're not told until they're adult. Right? I, I know lots of adoptees who are late discovery adoptees, LDAs they're referred to as, who weren't told until they were 21 or they found out when they went to get a marriage license that they were adopted. And I can tell you, as we know in, in addiction and recovery circles, um, secrets and lies are not good things to perpetuate if, as one is trying to personally recover from what, whether it be an addiction or a trauma or a, some type of complex toxic stress, some developmental trauma. So it, it takes away that safety, right? So a family has lied to one. That's the case. And, you know, in my case, I didn't have it to that extreme, but you know, just, just the mere fact that my family told me I was adopted and that was a great thing turned out to be a lie because I was treated by some people, um, <laughs> I was ostracized by some people and treated as less than because I was adopted, made to think that there was something wrong with me. So imagine, imagine being told like Jack Nicholson, right? He was raised by his sister, not his mother. And he found out much later in life that, that leaves a lasting impact. And that means that a level of trust and attachment has mm -hmm. to be built up. And we go back to Lisa's initial statements, right? These are the thought processes that are so ingrained and the perceptions that are so ingrained that they take a lot of work to extract the reality and the context out of them to do that. So yeah, ab absolutely, Angela, there are a lot of people in that boat and they, they, as a result, have those issues to deal with as well. And, you know, there's a lot of family secrets being uncovered now because of the different um, um, ancestry sites. My, uh, my wife is really involved in that stuff, uh, family research and so forth. And, and as she was doing that, she was contacted by a woman who um, I think through the DNA testing seemed to be related to Susan. And as it turns out, she was. And what it was is um, one of Susan's uncles apparently um, was stationed in the Navy on the West Coast in San Francisco, had an affair, had a child, never told anybody in Missouri, his family in Missouri about, the, about it. And so now this woman is reaching out and all these, the, her, her father's dead and everything, but is reaching out and to Susan and they put the pieces of the puzzle together and they say, Oh yeah, this is your father. And this is what happened, <laughs> you know, but isn't that interesting, you know, and, but I'm sure that could be, you know, maybe traumatic for the families themselves because I think that back in the fifties anyway, and uh, maybe it's even to this day, there was a lot of stuff that was being swept under the rug and not being talked about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not being talked about and or not being investigated because they just simply didn't have the tools that you mentioned and the genetic genealogists who are so important in our world today to help go through those things. But yes, absolutely. In the adoptee world, I can, without quoting anyone's story specifically, there are many uh, incidences of people who thought they had an uninterrupted family line who discover at one point in time, uh-oh, that man couldn't possibly have fathered that child who is my grandfather, right? So so there are interruptions in the chains of genealogy and genetics all over the place. Absolutely. And these, you're right, these are things that some 
people thought they were going to take to the grave, but science has changed all of all, all of that. Is uncovering that. But you know, what's, what's cool is Susan uh, has become friends with this new cousin and they still stay in touch. So yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Excellent. But I can certainly understand the trauma of, you know, um, of, not having that, not having that identity and then, and searching for it. I'm, I'm sure that's something that people long for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not, not something we can't always um, complete. Uh, they're just, they're just missing links. I mean, I, I can't speak out other than my own experience, but I do work with people who have been uh, adopted from other countries who there is no way they're going to ever retrieve any of their birth history. And um, as a result, um, part of working a program of addiction and adoption recovery has to do with radical acceptance, right? I have to accept that that's going to be a fact. I can mourn it. I can grieve it. I can do all the right things but that that's something that i can't focus on i can no longer hope for so what can i what can i now focus my efforts on and that's the case with lisa isn't it lisa yeah i was going to share that it's like this gaping hole and it's something that at different times in my life it's it's bothered me and i think as i get older it's uh more apparent you know it's because like uh, david said it's just that acceptance that that is something i will never know yeah, because of the circumstances surrounding that at that time with Korea. Joe is writing, he says that he did his DNA research and his nieces and nephews don't have the 50% that would be required to be the same as his elder brother who looks just like him. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> it, well, there are uh, excellent genetic genealogists out there, including those who can be referred by 23andMe and the other DNA sites who might help him deconstruct that yes well we didn't have any callers tonight but i do hope that those of you who are listening and those who will be listening in the future have found this discussion helpful um it was really great to have david and lisa on here um one of the best things about doing this podcast for me is all the friends that I've made while doing it. And I count David and Lisa and Angela among those friends <laughs> and all of you who listen as well. And the people who are participating in YouTube and on Facebook, it's just so much fun. I just, I love all of you. So thank you so much for listening. Yes. Thank you. I really enjoyed the discussion today and learned a lot. So I really appreciate Lisa and David sharing their experience with us. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And now, the music. And that's it. That's another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It was great to be here. Uh, sorry about the sound quality issues we may have had today, but that's not a big deal. Uh, if you would like to participate in supporting AA Beyond Belief, the podcast and website, you can do so in a couple of ways. You can visit our Patreon site, patreon.com slash Belief. That's right, yeah. And just become a subscriber. We have, like, Oh, I think 40 subscribers now. And uh, it's very nice. So thank you for, so much for that. And you can also uh, donate through PayPal, paypal.me slash Belief, or go to our website. And uh, I think that's about it. So thanks, everybody. We'll be back again next Friday for another Sober Distancing episode. I'm not quite sure what we'll be discussing, but we will be posting that real soon. Take care, all.